Welcome to the Uncommon Knowledge Podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Emily. And today we're joined by Sarah Griffin, who's a third year DFL student in art history. And she's going to be talking to us about uh, medieval cosmology. Uh, welcome, Sarah. Hi. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your, your project? So my project is looking at a particular set of 14th century diagrams on entire sheepskins, meaning they're pretty huge in which uh, Opportunist Dickonistris, a priest working for the Avignon Papacy in the mid-14th century, is trying to basically image the world by amalgamating all these different data sets. So this might include calendars, theological hierarchies, maps, um, putting all these traditional image types that we find in medieval visual culture and aligning them all together to try and make these kind of machines or theological machines of the universe. That sounds fascinating. What do they look like? Do they Are they hope, hopelessly complicated with writing everywhere? Yeah, they're pretty inaccessible. So they're all in Latin as well. They're covered in different types of numerals, Roman numerals and Arabic numerals. Um, some of them are circular, some of them are oblong. A lot of them, if you look at them, you think, ah, this is a map, until you see a crucified Jesus coming out of a particular region, or you see calendar rings of different um, circles of astronomical information and um, so when you first look at these they're really difficult to decipher it takes a while to unpick the different layers and how opportunus is uh, aligning all these sets against each other so do they tell a story in a way they're kind of they're telling us about the history of the world but it's not so much a narrative it's trying to tell you everything it's trying to collect all the information available to him working in this library in the Avignon Papacy and putting it all together. So um, in the way that it has a lot of uh, temporal information, calendars, the history of the world, it also tries to tell the future and it's putting all these things together to have a kind of atemporal depiction of time, which you can only really express in a diagram opposed to an image of Christ or an image of God. How does it compare to something like the Hereford Mundi, uh, which is not too far away? Oh, the really fun thing about Opportunus' maps is the mid-14th century, this is a time when Portland charts are being made uh, just a couple of decades before. Um, so we have things like the Hereford Mundi, which uh, are probably a, an older type of map, let's say. Um, and then he's also using Portland charts, which are actually accurate depictions of coastlines using different types of technologies. Just so to see one artist using the Mappa Mundi and Portland charts together is really quite fantastic. How were these used? Did he display them or were people poring over them trying to figure out where exactly they stood theologically and temporally and geographically at the same time? Oh, the thing about poor Opportunus is that we have a journal of his which actually says at some point um, I was working on the Avignon papacy, I was drawing a figure of a woman and I had to cover it up because I didn't want to shock the other priests who were walking in. So the, the impression we get from his journal is that he's creating these and he's hiding them and he's perfecting them to one day show them to the Pope. Um, but there's no record of him ever getting to that stage. So it sounds like he was just perfecting them until he died. What was his background? How did he become interested in doing this kind of work? Uh, so opportunists trained in Genoa as an illuminator, um, which is really important because cartography, Portland charts are being made in Genoa in the early 14th century. 
and this is um, where he learned how to copy maps. So we actually know from his journal, he says, I learned how to copy maps in Genoa. Um, so that's a really big part of his training is that he knows how to make maps. And uh, what my thesis tries to prove is that he also learned how to make calendars here. Um, so he's taking this information, going to the Avignon court, becoming a scripture in the penitentiary, um, seeing all these different diagram types. Um, and this is the visual culture that's informing him. And do we know much about the rest of his life? Did he spend the rest of his life in Avignon? It's inferred so. We think he stayed in Avignon until his death in the mid 14th century. Um, but one of his diagrams is actually an autobiographical plate, which is why we know so much about him. So it's this huge circular calendar, which describes the different years of his life um, with information such as where he lived, but also information like the date, uh, the day when his mother died or the day when his father died. Um, so it gets quite personal as well. Really useful for a historian. <laughs> and how were his maps received? Did people admire them? Were they thought of as revolutionary and interesting? So we have no record of how they were seen in the Middle Ages, um, which is another reason why so many people thought that the Pope never saw them and no one ever saw them. But the important thing about Opportunists is that all of the 20th century literature, or at least until the end of the 20th century, um, regards him as insane, because there's this part in his journal um, in 1334 where he describes, he describes something that sounds very much like what we would think of as a stroke. Um, and this is the year before he starts making his fantastic diagrams. Um, so a lot of the literature has focused on psychoanalytic readings, um, schematization being a big part of it. So a lot of um, comparing him to outsider art and how insane people express themselves through in images. And also because they're just so fantastical <laughs> that I think a lot of people have looked at them and just thought, God, that's really mad. <laughs> and do you agree? He definitely had some sort of health issue, which I think did affect his creative process. But I don't think that seeing his work through the lens of madness is useful, especially because there are such unique and wonderful things in there and so much data and information we can glean from it um, to say we shouldn't be taking these seriously just because of these readings isn't useful. And I suppose there's also something to be learned about the particular culture, even if even if he was mad, how, how does madness manifest itself? In, in the 14th century. Exactly. How is he being treated by mm. others in the penitentiary? Um, how was he allowed to stay in the Avignon papacy in 15 years after his stroke? But also, he's got to be getting this information from somewhere. Mm. Um, so my project specifically looks at calendars because he can't have been so good at astronomy and astrology that he would be able to create these calendars from nothing. So looking at other sources and comparing them to him you can see how unique he is. And that'll also gauge maybe how surreal these are, but also how normal they are in that visual culture. Is there any evidence that he was part of networks of people talking about these things at the time, or communicating with other scholars? Luckily enough, um, the Avignon Papal Court has very good, um, they set up a very good administrative system. So there is a lot of documentation of who John the 22nd, who was Pope when Opportunist moved to Avignon. Um, there's a lot of documentation of who he's talking to. And at the very bottom of the list, the most recent article I have read about it, um, it mentions Opportunist also spoke to John the 22nd, but in a very casual way uh, that wasn't documented very um, in depth. 
or very accurately. Uh, so we know that he's talking to the Pope, but aside from that, we don't know much. Is there any sense that, uh, or of difference between the Avignon papacy and the, the Roman papacy at this point in his, in his documents? Ah, uh, yeah, so the maps get very political. Yeah. Um, the Avignon split um, mm -hmm. from Rome, uh, John's being seen as the, John XXII being seen as the anti-Pope. They get very political, but of course, the diagrams are so complex that not no one scholar could ever know everything about Opportunus and what he's trying to say. So there's probably a whole different bibliography about that. What interests you most about the maps? What drew you to them to work on them in the first? Sorry, I keep calling them maps, but that seems like a reductive word in some ways for something so complex. But what drew you to them in the first place? I think just the complexity. You look at them and you think there's so much information. Um, so there's also this sense of kind of trying to decode them. Um, but also just looking at astronomy and calendars in the Middle Ages. It's just how did they visualise these um, intangible mechanisms that organise the universe? And how is he aligning these to ideas of God? Um, because as a medievalist, seeing kind of this uh, astronomical information with also this um, theological iconography aligned to it, it's almost like a goldmine. It's like, ah, oh, so this is how these ideas and these ideas relate to one another. Um, but yes, they're very visually captivating as well, just because they are so detailed. What, what kind of images are, are on the, uh, the maps? A load of different kind of images. Um, they're very diverse, but for example, you would see uh, crucified Jesus, which you'd expect uh, at this time. You see an image of God enthroned, you see the Virgin Mary, but you also see a tortoise in his journal, and you also see quite a few phalluses. Um, <laughs> As you'd expect. <laughs> yeah, and uh, pictures of childbirth even, which is wow, really rare. Yes, quite graphic images of childbirth, which is what he's trying to hide when the other priest comes in. Ah. Are they accurate? They're not medically, they're not medical, let's say that. But lots of figural imagery. And what do they say about his ideas about man's place in the cosmos? I think this is a very holistic idea that everything is connected, which is an idea that's floating around at the time in cosmology, um, that time and space and God are all these invisible things we can't see but can be aligned and by observing information, processing this information, as he's doing through his diagrams, I believe he's really thinking through these ideas as he's drawing, um, you can then infer more about what can't be seen. And is the, are the sheepskins themselves the only evidence for what he was thinking? He didn't leave any sort of um, written records in non-diagram form? So there's the, the 52 diagrams, and then these, there's the journal, um, which has some images in, um, but he actually doesn't talk too much about his diagrams in them, even though they are very useful in understanding his thought and what sources he's looking at. Um, so for example, he talks about John of Sacrobosco, um, and then you can see the ideas found in the texts of John of Sacrobosco in his larger diagrams. Is it fair to read into the fact that he had the resources to undertake these massive projects that people were supportive of them and thought that they were worthwhile? So they must have had quite a bit of value. I mean, it's 27 sheepskins. 
and that's a flock of sheep, basically. So um, he must have had the resources at the Avignon Papacy, but why he's being allowed to do this and how these survived is a bit of a mystery. So are they all on, is, is, is each sort of map or uh, on one sheepskin or are they uh, stitched together? Most of them are double-sided. Okay. Uh, they're not stitched together. It's uh, just one sheet each. Mm -hmm. And you can actually see from the shape of each sheet that you can see the spine of the sheep. Um, so he's not cutting them down or editing them. But this is quite um, normal for portal and charts. You can actually see the neck of the sheep and where that would have gone. So it's this strange shape. Does, does the fact that it is a sheep and there's a body there kind of present uh, a sense of hol holistic, uh, and this is a corpus information and a, and a physical body? I've never thought about that, but I really like that. Especially because there is this idea of microcosm and macrocosm that he's expressing in his drawings because he has the world, the macrocosm, or the cosmos, the universe, everything. Um, but then he also has these large figures standing next to them with the zodiac around them, um, which is, we know from about the Middle Ages that they believe this, that the body could be a microcosm of the larger cosmos. And, and when you talk about calendars, medieval calendars, what, I mean, I don't have any idea what, what they would include. Is it feast days and that kind of thing, or...? Yeah, it's, it's actually a lot of information. So just as you would see in a book of hours, or even on an astronomical clock, um, which ha often had calendars on, you have the feast days, um, as well as the dominical letters, which is basically A to G, um, each standing for a day of the week. Um, and the golden numbers, and without getting into too much detail, it's basically a lot of astronomical information that would allow you to calculate the movable feast days, such as Easter. So they were very functional in that sense. They're not purely um, astronomers trying to record down information, but monks would have used these to compute the um, immovable, uh, the movable calendar from the immovable calendar. Uh, often these calendars are very localized, you know, drawing on local saints and things like that. How does that square with this sense of the grandeur of the world and, and the cosmos? Yeah, it's, it's almost quite, quite funny in that sense, because we have Alpacinas trying to have the entire cosmos, but then he is also focusing in on not just Avignon and Rome, but his, also his hometown Pavia, which he's very passionate about. So we see Pavian saints um, make their way into his liturgical calendars. Also, he draws Pavir, uh, maps of Pavir. He even has a tract that's being translated this summer um, about Pavir and his love for the great uh, town which nurtured him. That's so interesting that they're also so incredibly specific. And... Yeah, they are personalised in a sense. Um, but then we actually only see his name once. We only know he's, he is opportunist from one th diagram in his journal. So it's strange that we get these things which are meant to be for the cosmos, for the eyes of the Pope, that are meant to have all the information in the universe, and then we have an autobiographical plate that tells us about every single year of his life. <laughs> <laughs> He's kind of making himself the centre of, of the world in a way, or his exactly. own experience yes, as, as exactly. the, the centre. So does that come into the psychoanalytical...? Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, just about how he's recording his experiences. Um, and he talks about certain popes he doesn't like in negative ways and this kind of thing. It's definitely very personal. So are there any political repercussions for, for discussing popes that uh, you're not particularly fond of? I mean, 
is that per perhaps one of the reasons why these these uh, charts were never really seen or published in a way? Well, it's it's difficult to say how they were taken or if any pope ever actually read them, because Opportunus did stay in the Avignon papacy until he died in the mid fourteenth uh, century, um, and it doesn't look like he was punished in any way. So we're now looking at some of these images and. Sarah, did you take these photos yourself in the Vatican Museum? or? Uh, no, they're very, very secretive and strict about photography there. Um, these are ones that I purchased from the Vatican, but to actually do research on them, um, I've gone to the Vatican a couple of times and looked at them in their archives. What's it like seeing them in person? It's a completely different experience. I mean, the digitizations are incredible. They're, you can zoom in so close um, and read them which is so much better than, you know, they're huge TIFF files, they're really quite good quality. But seeing them in front of you gives you this sense that they were so meticulously planned out and had been really laboured over, and they're so much more clear. You can really read every single word, um, which even despite how good the digitizations are, it's not quite possible. So just to get a sense of size, I know, I mean, I can kind of imagine how big a sheep is, but how you know, when it's when the, the skin is all stretched out, how big would this be? Um, so I would say perhaps about a metre high. Um, I do have to outstretch my arms a little bit to pick one up when it's in portrait mode, mm -hmm. uh, portrait orientation. Um, so enough to make the Vatican librarians nervous when I'm handling them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so everything's kind of circular. Is there any relevance to that um, in terms of the way that people would see the world or is that particularly or is that pretty normal oh this one's particularly important that it's circular because it's um the year and the, the cycle of the year so it's meant to i guess it's an atemporal depiction of time in that sense because you see time as it repeats itself um and you also have the zodiac signs in the sky um but cosmologies in the middle ages usually are in circular format um, yeah, so that's kind of interesting in terms of the way that we normally get calendars in, in books of hours and things like that are in column form, in linear. Mm. So uh, d can that tell us something very different about these two kinds of calendars? Well, that's a big part of why it's important to look at um, contemporary, well, why it's important to look at medieval visual culture more widely, not just to look at liturgical books, but to look at astronomical calendars such as the ones that are accompanying the portland charts which opportunist is using um but yeah these astronomical calendars um are much more like the format of astronomical diagrams at the time because they're showing a different type of significance not just uh, not listing feast days but actually showing how they work in relation to astronomical ideas and data yeah kind of I, they look completely different but it sort of reminds me of the uh the calendar pages in the, the Très Richard de la Duc de Berry or something, you know, where they've got the zodiac mm. um, above the, the picture of the uh, the season. Um, and that, and those have that little um, half semicircle at the top as well. And so it's kind of blending, perhaps mm. using the same, a, a similar sort of visual program, perhaps? No, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it makes them more like functional instruments in that way. Um, so this looks, uh, Opportunist's diagram looks much more like an astrolabe which has um, calendar rings in a circular format uh, for calculating different astronomical information, then it would look like a book of hours. 
which is why I think it's so informed by contemporary instruments such as astrolabes and different astronomical ideas. So this is kind of a piece of technology in a way. Yes, and this is exactly why I think of them as these theological machines. And they're coming out exactly the same time that astronomical clocks are becoming a big thing. Um, so the idea of having mechanized models of the universe, I, this is what Opportunus is trying to do, but in a static image. Do you think that Opportunus himself was a user of astronomical technology at the time? It's really difficult to say, but the fact that astronomical clocks are becoming a bigger thing in northern Italy in the early 14th century, perhaps even earlier, um, I don't think it could be too coincidental. There isn't a piece of documentation where Opportunus says, I looked at a clock and I tried to emulate it, but this is the technology that would have been progressing at the time. Would clocks like that have been uh, pervasive all over Europe or were they only in specific learning centres? Um, they're actually quite big all over Europe. It's it's difficult to say because we, we have a few survivals, but a lot of them are, because these are functional instruments, many of the components are constantly being changed and updated um, or just, you know, wearing out. So we have textual documentation of astronomical clocks in certain places, and that's our best idea of when they're starting to um, come into the public eye. But we know that they were in use at Avignon? We don't have anything particular about them at Avignon. We know that they're thinking about the visualisation of time in Avignon, because there's a calendar reform project going on um, around the same time that Opportunist is making his drawings, but there is no textual documentation of an astronomical clock there or at least not one that anyone working on the opportunist is aware of. Were there any sort of theological problems with having things like the Zodiac and kind of older, perhaps not, not pagan, but uh, kind of classical models of, of uh, understanding the universe and coinciding with, with Christianity? Uh, so what constitutes licit and illicit, um, I guess you can call it science, at the time gets very complicated um, because just before Opportunist comes to the Avignon court, John XXII is holding all these um, consultations about what astrological ideas should be allowed and not allowed. Um, Opportunist does actually say at some point that he doesn't believe in astrology and being able to predict someone's character is ridiculous. To, it's ridiculous to look at zodiac signs to do that. But as you can see from his diagrams, he's very much into the alignment of astro astronomical ideas with theological ones. Just a boring technical question, what is the red ink? So the red ink, he's using uh, kind of very dark brown and red ink throughout. Um, and just like in a book of hours, he's using the red to um, write certain data sets like the dominical letters and certain feast days. So the most important feast days in liturgical calendars are usually in red and Opportunus is conforming to that here. So we've got a picture of, of um, Christ in the middle, but there's something about his, his navel that sort of is the very, very centre. What, what it actually is, I can't actually see the picture very well, but what, what's around the middle there? So in the centre is um, what is labelled sponsors and sponsor, so the bridegroom, bride and bridegroom of the church embracing. Definitely introducing theological ideas, but I'm not exactly sure why. And practically speaking, would this be done with a, with a compass? Opportunus is definitely using a compass um, because it, if you look at 
his circular images um, in the flesh, so to speak, um, you can see the compass hole in the very centre and his circles are so exact that there's no way he would have been able to do that freehand. There's kind of some darkness around um, this middle circle here. Is there, do you know what that is? That is where he's input certain information and then had to correct himself, right. um, but just hasn't been able to rub out the ink very well, so it looks quite messy. And this is also, this particular image is one of his earliest drawings, so um, it's actually the one with one of the most emendations, so him correcting himself most often. So the other ones, the later calendars look a bit more slick. So how did the various interesting images that we can see relate to the calendar? So we have the images of the zodiac which are running in a circle around the relevant parts of the year, so this is fairly typical. Um, but very fun in Ophigenus' drawings is how he's putting images such as um, the crucifixion of Christ, which is emerging out of one of the calendar rings, and his outstretched arms actually align to the dates which are the earliest and latest parameters that Easter can fall. And since Easter is the day in which they celebrate Christ's crucifixion, um, we can see opportunists thinking about this and representing it visually. And are they the same conventional signs that we would associate with the zodiac today for the most part? Pretty much exactly the same. He does change them a little bit, but they're pretty much all recognisable if you know anything about zodiacs or if you're into your horoscopes. Um, so we're looking at one right now, but are the other ones, do they look quite similar to this? Um, so they're all kind of similar, but all entirely different. No two are the same, but you see the same elements popping up everywhere. So you see simplified versions of this calendar ring appear throughout many of his diagrams, and they actually get more and more surreal as they go on. So here we just see cal a circular calendar. It's actually fairly legible. It's not that atypical from what you would actually know. Um, but then later, we see, later images, we see him putting different calendar rings, overlapping them, putting them in different formations. Um, and this all uh, ties into the reading that he was insane. But do you see it as something else? as him perhaps just getting more adept at using this form format to express his ideas about the cosmos or yeah exactly i mean i the more and more i work with him i see that he's um establishing this visual language through refining the data he's originally trying to draw simplifying it and then experimenting with it so here he's really thinking through the calendar uh, calendar he's expressing it in a certain way putting all the information possible in it that he can in it, and then he refines it in his other drawings, and he starts looking at different components, such as the Portland charts. Um, and I think this is all part of him trying to make this perfect diagrams that that includes everything possible. <laughs> so he's not mad; he's just a bit obsessive. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, this idea of schematization, a lot of outsider art um, relates to uh, schematic images. So these images on the side, are those evangelist portraits? Uh, so in the corners, uh, yeah, those are the four evangelists, exactly. So um, the ox, angel, lion and eagle. Um, and this is something we see on astronomical calendars in Genoa, where Opportunus is working. And so I believe that he took these ideas from that. But they're also very visually similar to other portraits of the evangelists being made in Avignon at the time. 
Um, are these particular uh, images, do they relate to the calendar in the same way as the crucified Christ does? Um, I don't think so much. It doesn't seem to correlate to any date. And then they actually appear in almost every one of Opportunus's drawings, um, basically fra as a framing device. So in the maps as well, it's not just the calendars, but all of his images. We see the evangelists in the corner um, holding scrolls um, from the gospel that they signify. So it's almost, they're almost more used as a framing device, but also a way to get in scriptural information and introduce more theological ideas. Is it also a way of claiming orthodoxy if he's putting in some potentially illicit theological ideas? Is it a good idea to use as much conventional religious iconography as you can? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a quoting a kind of authority and you can't go wrong in this instance if you're quoting the Bible directly. So kind of showing that he knows his stuff. So there's no evidence that these were treated as the outpourings of an insane man during his lifetime? Uh, certainly not at the time. No, we don't have any documentation of people's reactions to them. What caused people to start looking at them in that way in the 20th century? How did that come about? Um, so they were first documented when they were found and brought to a church historian called Richard Salmon in the early 20th century and he wrote something that was fairly descriptive. Um, and then fairly soon after this, Ernst Chris, a famous psychoanalyst, started to write lectures about them. And since he was, um, he was a psychoanalyst or use psychoanalytic theory so much anyway, this was kind of perfect for him. Um, and then it kind of snowballed from that. And there are definitely instance of, in, interesting instances of it that show his, um, show his eccentricity. So the, these um, charts kind of document the, the known world in a way, in every, every sort of an encyclopedia of, of knowledge. Is there any way of expressing uh, the unknowable? in these charts? Do they kind of hint at something beyond human understanding? Well, I think that's what he's, I think that's the end game of these images, um, where he's putting these different visual ideas together um, and trying to infer more from them. So kind of refining that information to then visualize something that isn't there, which is this visualization of the cosmos. So in terms of the orientation, there's clearly one way up, but a lot of the writing is written upside down, sort of, so I guess one would have to either turn the page or walk around it in some way. Mm. Is there a sense of tactility in these, um, in these documents, sort of a haptic experience? I think so. I mean, the fact that they're quite large as well, you kind of, you do have to move around just to be able to see them. But with portal and charts, it's, it's the same thing where you're rotating them, looking at them more in depth. Um, and this one, we do have a picture of God straight bang in the middle, so we do read it a certain way up. But with the others, it's more like you're turning it constantly and there's text on its head and um, you're really having to navigate your way around the image. And that experience of turning, I guess, kind of also mimics the, the changing of the year and, and, and the cyclical nature of, of all the things that are being represented here. Exactly, the ever-moving universe mm -hmm. and cosmos. Would you ever be able to use it to figure out what date Easter was supposed to be that year? It more works the other way around in that you can use the entrances in his calendars to try and figure out what exact year he was writing them in. 
But then that's also problematic because he could have been copying a calendar from two years before and not really thinking it through. And from the laissez-faire way, he refers to the calendars in his drawings. I don't think he was inventing or computing these calendars. I think he's copying them from somewhere. And being very literate and obviously quite intelligent, he's um, able to do that, but he's not always 100% accurate. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for coming to join us on this podcast. I know people who've been listening will be keen to see the images that we've been talking about, and they'll be able to find those on our blog at uncommonknowledgeoxford.wordpress.com. Thanks so much, Sarah. Pleasure.